Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. And I got my first beehive while I was there. It was a swarm that was hanging from a tree when we were out working some bee yards. Bees just swarm. That's how they reproduce. Mm-hmm. And I caught that and took it home and uh, didn't ask my boss. I did it on the clock. <laughs> and uh, I think I used one of his old boxes, too. They had thrown in the burn pile. And I just tinkered with that hive over time and slowly acquired more swarms. And that's how we got started. And I don't, I don't know what it was, but there was uh, it was like a little switch kind of flipped on in my brain when I started getting around bees that it was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, this is like my passion. This is, it just became like my entire world. I just became obsessed with it. I would study and read and watch videos all day. I would, you know, I'd work all day and I'd come home and watch like YouTube videos and read books at night. I was like obsessive compulsive about it. That was Matthew Walker from Walk in the Woods Apiary located in Washington County, Florida. And this is the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And on this episode, I'll be chatting with Matthew about what sparked his fascination with bees and how someone can start their own business with just one hive. We'll also cover how swarm removal is a huge part of beekeeping, how people can improve the genetics of bees, and the difference between wildflower honey and tupelo honey. Matthew will explain how important the California almond crop is to the bee industry and the interesting politics involved in it. And lastly, we'll cover the biggest issues facing bees, how he built up a tolerance to bee stings after all these years, and what it takes to manage over 2,000 hives. When the show's over, check out the links below for all things Walk in the Woods Apiary and for more episodes of the podcast. And be sure to check out our latest video over on YouTube, also linked in the description, featuring Matthew and I chatting about a recent bee infestation I had at my house. Now, please enjoy episode 203 with Matthew Walker. What was your introduction to bees? Like, was there like a super cool moment or something? Like what started the whole apiary idea with you? Um, well, the very, very first time I ever saw a hive, my stepfather had five, 10 hives back when I was in college. I would come and visit. I never, 
I never actually looked inside the hives or really had any interaction. I actually had zero interest back then. I just was like, oh, he's okay. got bees. And he lent me a book. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was an older beekeeping book and it was showing the history of beekeeping and I was just skimming through it. And that kind of sparked, that actually is where the interest was sort of sparked. But, um, what really got me into it is I had just moved here and Mm. I needed a job and my dad just happened to be friends with the, uh, owner's son of a local apiary. It's like two miles down the road and they're huge. They run like 8,000 hives. They run them over between Michigan and Florida. And, uh, I was like, oh, cool. You know, I wanted, I, I kind of knew I wanted to do something like agriculture. I was sort of post call yeah. trying to figure out what I wanted. And I just got that job and they actually only hired me to, uh, extract the honey, not even do anything with bees in the very beginning. But I was working beside this, uh, retired state bee inspector. He had like 17 years as a state inspector and he would just fill my mind with all these cool things. Oh, we could be making <laughs> like money off this many hives. Look at all this honey. There's a thousand, you know, gallons of honey out there. It's worth this much. And that was like, wow, okay, you could maybe make a living doing this. And then I started learning more about bees and I got more interested. So it was really that job that that really got me into it. And I got my first beehive while I was there. It was a swarm that was hanging from a tree when we were out working some bee yards. Bees just swarm. That's how they reproduce. Mm-hmm. And I caught that and took it home and uh, didn't ask my boss. I did it on the clock. <laughs> and uh, I think I used one of his old boxes too. They had thrown in the burn pile. And I just tinkered with that hive over time and slowly acquired more swarms. And that's how we got started. And I don't, I don't know what it was, but there was a, it was like a little switch kind of flipped on in my brain when I started getting around bees that it was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, this is like my passion. This is, it just became like my entire world. I just became obsessed with it. I would study and read and watch videos all day. I would, you know, I'd work all day and I'd come home and watch like YouTube videos and read books at night. I was like obsessive compulsive about it. And, um, and that switch has never turned off. I've never lost that passion. So it's just really consumed my life in good and bad ways. You know, sometimes <laughs> too much into your passion, everything else sort of kind of falls to the wayside, but you know, we are, where we are now because I've been applying that process for the last, you know, six years, I guess, since I started. So what was it about it, about bees and I mean, beekeeping that really like clicked with you? It was like, I remember in the beginning, it was, it was like magic or something. I, 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 right. I can always like the way the bees just hang out the hive, the way they were sort of just swaying a little bit in the wind that they were making this. I think they, I believe they're the only insect that produces food that humans consume. And I was like, this insect's making this, del- this delicious, like ingredient that, you know, that never expires. It lasts for thousands of years, right? They've dug up like Egyptian mummies and cracked open the sarcophagi and like found crystallized honey and just spread it on the bread and ate it. And it was just fine. Crazy. So I, yeah, it, it, it is. It's just, uh, it was very magical trying to learn about all the intricate details of beekeeping and, and the farm that I had started on, they raised their own Queens too. And then that was mm. like even more special. They were making this one specific type of bee that was so integral, uh, so important to the whole beehive. And I, I don't know, that's all I can describe it. It, it was like magic. Um, it just kind of hooked me. And, um, you know, and now I enjoy it also as running as a business, you know, it, it, you know, it's paying my bills. I really appreciate that, but there's still something so special about bees. And I find that people who, who don't even really want to keep bees, they also find bees pretty interesting. You know, everybody that I can be outside working and people constantly stop, pull off, you know, the side of the road and they, Hey, they they don't get too close. You know, they're scared of getting stung. (laughs) Oh yeah. You gotta be careful. They take, yeah, they want to take pictures. They want to learn some cool bee facts and, and so there's a lot of interest. And I think definitely in our country, there's a lot of uh, kind of in the social media sort of presence. There's this whole like 
save the bees mentality. Everybody kind of yeah. has that in their head that the bees are disappearing and we have to save them. We have to help them. And, and, and people will just stop me. They're like, oh, you're a beekeeper. That's so great. Thank you for, you know, saving the bees and all this stuff. And there's more to it than that. That's definitely the big, broad, general. Bees are not necessarily disappearing in a commercial environment. They're disappearing in the, in the wild. Um, but that's a whole different topic. So I, I don't know. I love everything about it. I, I, it's just my life. It's all I do seven days a week. I've been working. I spent five years working for two other beekeepers uh, mm-hmm. while I was starting up my own business. So I literally was doing bees like day and night, seven days a week for like the last six years almost. So when you're, when you were starting this business, you're talking about swarms earlier. Like, do you go out and buy hives from people? Or if somebody has like a, a swarm in their backyard, do you go get them and then you build your hives off of that? That's what I did, the swarms. That's how I got started. Okay. I've never purchased any hives ever. We bought some queens to kind of bring in different uh, genetic traits to our apiary and to reduce inbreeding. But I, you know, I was very lucky in that, you know, I've worked on two large commercial apiaries that were running thousands of hives. So it was not uncommon for me to go out there and catch five swarms in a day and I oh, could wow. bring those back. Yeah, it was, it was very good. And you know, a swarm's probably a hundred dollars worth of bees. So it was a nice little increase, uh, that I didn't have to pay for. And in the very beginning of beekeeping, you're going to kill most of your bees because it's just tough to keep them alive. And even with me working around these guys that had decades of experience all day, I still killed <laughs> the majority of the hives, I'm sure, those first few years. But I was able to replace them with the swarms. And we did do a little business where we would try and go and do cutouts for people who had swarms under their mm-hmm. house or in a tree or something. And um, I didn't like it as much because they usually don't survive the removal process. And uh, it's it's sometimes it's a long, several-hour job. And it's it's not very nice, uh, which is why most beekeepers will they charge several hundred dollars for those kind of services. Oh, a hundred percent. So one of my coworkers actually, her husband does this, like like kind of beekeeping on the side a little bit, and he does a lot of extraction. And my wife and I, we noticed we had a lot over by our air conditioner, and he we called him. He came up, and we're like the water hookup is for our irrigation system. They had formed a huge swarm. So he came out and got them and we watched him for like 30 minutes and it was wild. Like we watched him like remove the honeycombs, look for the, the, um, the queen and find them. And then he his wife was telling my coworker was telling me a story where there was a house over near 30A here in Florida and, um, they had a huge swarm on like the third story. And he was like, yeah, I can't do it. You're going to need like an expert crew to come in here. So that's a, that's a crazy part of like beekeeping that people don't yeah. really realize, like going into homes and like getting them out of the homes. Yeah. I mean, there's during spring, like our peak seat swarming season over here, I get a cone call like every single day. I even have it on our website. Hey, I don't do these removals. And uh, <laughs> they still call. Actually, a lady called me just a few hours ago in Panama City, I think. And there was a swarm in a tree and she wanted to cut the tree down and save the bees, which it's really hard to do. You know, when that tree hits yeah. the ground, you know, most of the hives are going to be smashed. And I had to explain that. And, and if they're not beekeepers, I appreciate the sentiment. They want to save the bees and that's great, but they, they don't understand that it's so hard to do that removal process. And that's why we charge and that the bees honestly don't always survive. And, and if you're doing bees commercially, you don't know what kind of pests and diseases you're bringing in from that hive into your own apiary. There's a lot of risk involved. And, uh, I had to kind of explain that to her and she was very sad. And I was like, you're mm. probably not going to save those bees. Cause yeah, I don't know. You would have to like cut the tree down in like chunks and sections and work to the hive and scrape the comb out. And yeah, that it sounded like a nightmare. <laughs> it does. So like, I mean, I know years ago bees have been struggling. So what's like the current state of bees? Like, I mean, just here in the United States in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, 
when you hear like bees are dying out, that that's kind of half true. It's true and not true. So they're dying out in the wild. The feral hives, the mm. wild beehives that used to exist, you know, decades ago, um, prior to the in- introduction of the varroa mite. That's okay. when you hear about bees dying out and, you know, all these mm. diseases, they're the number one cause. They're the main problem because the type of bees, the, the uh, bees that we race here in America just aren't resistant. There are some Asian honeybees that are resistant to the varroa mite. And um, there's some other types of mite called a tracheal mite that uh, a breed of buckfast bees are resistant to. So that they have not just that, but, you know, American fowl brood and uh, European fowl brood, small high beetle, all these other pests and diseases have been introduced through the globalization of the beekeeping trade. So we're just intermingling and we're bringing in pests and diseases that our, our bees just never developed a natural resistance to. So pretty much that means in layman's terms, the wild hives have just gotten wiped out. And like they generally will live. I tell most people a swarm will live only a year or two without some sort of like human beekeeper intervention intervention. And that's typically, you know, applying uh, medication multiple times per year per hive and rotating those medications because the main uh, medication that beekeepers use to knock down these varroa mites is called Amitraz. And there's mm-hmm. different products that you can buy that have that chemical. Uh, the mites are already showing resistance to it. There was a, a chemical prior to Amitraz called fluvalinate that beekeepers used to use. And uh, the mites are pretty much 100% resistant to that now. And, uh, and those are pretty heavy duty, concentrated, toxic stuff. You know, you don't ever want to apply when you're making honey. Uh, they cause cancer in humans. And they mm. build up in your wax and they can survive for years in the bees wax. And those chemicals can actually leach out into your honey. And uh, it's it, they're all labeled carcinogens by the FDA. So you have to really be careful when and how you apply these things. And a lot of beekeepers, in order to you know survive on the small profit margins we make, will import some of those chemicals illegally from Mexico because it's much cheaper. Mm. They'll mix stuff you know, in their barn and they can vary in, in concentrations. And uh, I understand why they're doing it. Uh, you know, obviously they're just trying to feed their families, a lot of people, and the EPA is extremely slow at approving new types of medication. There's, there's a new medication everyone's talking about now that, uh, the EPA is just really dragging their butt on getting it approved and people are using it. Um, sure, because we have to keep our bees alive and, um, but go back to the main question, uh, kind of ramble off there about medicine. Uh, the wild hives are dying out and don't survive for very long. Uh, but commercial colonies actually have been increasing over the last many years. Mm, okay. So there has there has been an influx of beekeepers. You have people like me or sort of these first generation, maybe younger beekeepers. And we're, we're coming into the industry. And I, I kind of grew up with a row, these like varroa mites and small high beetles and all these other issues. I learned that from day one. You know, some of these older beekeepers who are now pushing, you know, 60, 70 years old, they always tell me these days before all these things got introduced. So some of them have adapted extremely well to the new form of beekeeping and some of them have not. And they just got out of the industry because it was so much more expensive and labor, um, you know, consuming and all that. So, but yeah, overall colonies have been increasing in the United States. That's good to hear. And going back, um, that's all perfect. Like going back to the, the medicine real quick, like one kind of a two part question, like one, how do you apply that medicine? And then two, how do you check the honey? Like to make sure that there's no residuals in that honey. Yeah, sure. So the application of the medicine depends on the type of medicine. There, there's a okay. bunch of different medications. You, go, I don't know. I think of a, to- a half a dozen off the top of my head that we use, and we some of them we use in multiple formats. 
some of them are some of the like over the counter medications. If you want to buy it and it's approved by, you know, FDA, EPA, the whole shebang, uh, they can be as simple as having these little plastic strips you just put inside the brood nest. So that's where the queens laying her eggs. Okay. And you can pull them out a couple months later. It, it can be that simple. And then uh, some other ones like oxalic acid, which is an organic acid. It's a very popular treatment right now. The mites are showing absolutely no resistance to it. It's been used in Europe for decades and decades. That can um, be applied by uh, sublimating it. So it's heating it from a solid state to a gas state very quickly okay. uh, from using something called a vaporizer. And that just gases off. And uh, usually you want to use a, a respirator, like an organic acid gas respirator, because you don't want to breathe this stuff in. Um, you can also mix the oxalic acid with a sugar water solution and just sprinkle it on top of the bees. And that's another form of applying that medicine. And then there's the new medicine that I was, that I was specifically kind of talking about with the EPA kind of going slow is this oxalic acid and vegetable glycerin combination that's heated up to around 150 or so degrees until it melts together. And then you soak it in, in some sort of substrate like cardboard or Swedish sponges or maximizer pads, something like that. And you put mm-hmm. that in the hive, it's basically a sponge in the hive and it's half glycerin, half oxalic and the bees chew it up. And as they're chewing it up, they're slowly spreading this oxalic all throughout the hive. And that, that helps with the mites. So there's a lot of different methods to apply. It just depends on what kind of medication you're applying and uh, you know, and how often you need to, to treat. And, and like we, myself in my area, I medicate at least three times a year, probably four times a year. And I try okay. to always rotate the medicines. So like we use a lot of Apivar uh, twice a year. That is like the legal form of Amitraz, but I can only use it twice a year. So if in order for me to treat the other two times a year, I have to mix something else in, which is usually oxalic, but I've tried some other medicines, but oxalic's pretty safe because it's already naturally in the, uh, present in the hive. It's naturally present in, in uh, honey. Humans mm-hmm. already eat oxalic acid on a regular daily basis. And uh, it's pretty safe as far as, you know, an acid goes. So in terms of beekeeping, I know that there are some people that, you know, if you go out and work with them, you gas them or you don't like which side of it are you on? Gas or them not, like... not, not gas them, but, but smoke them. Oh yeah, definitely smoke. Yeah. That's crazy <laughs> to me. I, I do. I do. I have heard brand new beekeepers tell me not to use smoke, but that's ridiculous. The smoke, believe it or not, actually calms the bees down. They don't yeah, want yeah. to crack in their hive open when they're, when they're attacking and stinging you. That's a stress response that they're, they're miserable. They're unhappy. They're, they're fighting for their lives and the lives of their, you know, their, their family. That's the smoke chills them out. It definitely causes some stress to them because yeah, they think there's Mm -hmm. a fire, but I promise they're much, much more calm. Um, however, I did work with a beekeeper for just a few weeks and he bought, I wish I knew where he got them from. He bought this breed of bees, these two brothers. I can't remember their name. They're kind of local. We're breeding their own bees for like many years. These guys were like multi-generational beekeepers and they bred the most gentle bees I've ever seen in my life. I never would have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes because the the guy I was working for at the time was like, hey man, you can go crack these hives open. No smoke, no gloves, no no veil, no bee suit, no nothing. And I'm like, okay, this guy's nuts. You know, (laughs) all these, some of these beekeepers have their own little weird voodoo, you know, techniques. And, uh, Sure enough, I went through 200 hives that day, cracked them all straight in half. I pulled frames out of the brood nest where the queen is, and which is usually where they're hyper defensive about. I didn't mm-hmm. get stung once. No veil, no nothing. No smoke. Never lit the smoker. I, I could not believe it. The bees just sat there. They were the most chilled out bees I've ever seen. And I, I wish I could get some of those genetics. So it, it can happen. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend smoking. 
That's so cool. I mean, like what all goes into developing those sort of bee genetics to where you can get like super duper chill bees. Yeah, you've got to, um, that's, I gave a presentation on our bee club partially on, uh, on that topic last night. Oh. And so there's a lot that goes into queen rearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically you can't, unless you're doing artificial insemination of honeybees, which is, is, is possible. I've never done it, but it sounds very complex. You have to have specialized equipment. You can actually control the genetics to a hundred percent, right? So you're, you're mm. choosing all the sperm from a line of male bees. Those are called the drones. You're removing that sperm and you're injecting it directly into a virgin queen. So a virgin or a queen that hasn't made it the drones yet. And, um, and then you're controlling a hundred percent of that genetic line. Um, it requires a lot of skill from my understanding because you can absolutely make a mistake. Artificial insemination of insects is like a really tiny needle. You know, you're yeah, knocking these bees crazy. unconscious. Have yeah, a microscope it's, it's per- and everything. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I really would love to just learn that technique. But um, outside of that, you if you're doing what's called open mating, which is you're allowing your bees to mate naturally, so the bees are just sort of flying out, probably within a couple mile radius, and they're mm. intermingling and mating like how they would just naturally. Um, you can't control the genetics at all. I there's beekeepers all around me. You know their drones are absolutely mating with my queens, and my drones are mating with their queens. So it's very difficult to control any kind of genetics. You you would have to be in a, an extremely isolated place where you could be 100% certain there were no wild bees or no commercialized bees within several miles of your mating yards to kind of to control the uh, open mating genetics. But generally what you do, what I do is either A, I buy queens from a specialized queen rear who happens to have some of those those uh, yards that are isolated. Okay. And, um, and then I will breed off her line. So I'll take the larva that specialized queen is laying. It's called grafting and I'll raise queens from there. Um, and I also typically try to choose the top 10% or 20% of my hives that have traits that I like. And I raise queens based off those. I choose their larva and that allows me to trend. That's all you can really do. You kind of trend towards a trait or you kind of trend away from a trait. You can't be like, oh, I want double my honey, so I'm going to make this happen. No, you don't. You can slowly, over many generations, inch towards making more honey. But there's a, you know, there's a negative side. As you gain more honey, that usually is going to equal, uh, you know, a higher bee population. Higher bee populations mean your feed bill is going to increase every year. So there's there's give and takes. It sounds like it. How does how do those genetics like impact the honey? I mean, does it have a huge impact on the flavor or or what? No, um, not as far as I, I've never heard that, but typically anything that's going to affect, affect the, the flavor of the honey will be the source that the bees are getting their nectar and even pollen from. So that'll, okay, that'll it. change. Like over here, we have a, a wildflower honey. That's just wildflowers, bee, bee language for, I don't know what's in that honey bottle, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, uh, usually that's your darker brown honey typically. And then over here, we have a specialized tree called Tupelo and everybody, all the locals love it. It's a very difficult crop to make. It only, sometimes it only produces once every several years. And it's a very light colored, almost like yellow green tint to it that changes the color and the flavor profiles are very different. And there's some guys down south that do Brazilian pepper honey, you know, and it's got mm-hmm. like a little twang to it from the, I guess, the the heat from the peppers. So that the, the floral sources are what will change your color and, and honey taste. Okay. And how close are those, I mean, are those crops, like, especially like the pepper or the tupelo, like how close are those crops to the actual hives? Um, so generally bees will fly, um, within about a two mile radius from their hives. Mm -hmm. If they're very, very, very hungry and desperate for resources, they can fly upwards of five miles, but 
very few of those forager bees will return from that flight because it's so many things can happen. Birds or dragonflies can mm. eat them. They get hit by a car when they go across the road. Um, so I generally tell people two miles uh, is just fine. Now, the closer you can get them to that floral source, um, you know, less work they have to burn, less calories they're burning, transporting that food back and forth because obviously they have to eat too. So if they're traveling less to their food source, you're going to get a larger honey crop. Um, also, if you're trying to do a specialized honey crop, so like Tupelo, you don't necessarily want to put them miles away from a Tupelo crop because they, bees are kind of creatures of, um, convenience, I guess, or, you know, they're going to take okay. the path of least resistance. They're going to stop at all <laughs> those nice little flowers along the way before they want to go get that Tupelo tree that you want to go harvest. Cause you can sell it for twice the price as the wildflower honey. So you want them closer. So they're at that Tupelo honey's not diluted by like in our area, say gallberry is a common one or privet, uh, that will dilute your Tupelo and then you can't legally sell it as Tupelo anymore. Oh, okay. And also yeah. before I forget, I know bee pollen is also super popular. I mean, some people put that in their yogurt. I mean, it's really good. And also it's like yeah. really healthy for you, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's the protein source for the bees and it's a protein source for humans as well. All the different colors of pollen are, are, you know, different floral sources the bees have collected that pollen from. And what's really interesting is you'll never see a bee with two different colored uh, pollen on their legs. You know, they have their little pollen sacks on the back. It's going to be mm -hmm. a yellow pollen or an orange or red or green because as they're collecting pollen, they only collect pollen from that exact plant until they're done collecting from that source. And then they go to a new source. Oh, so they just okay. really target that. So they're not mixing different pollens. It's they're exactly. just like focused, at least on that, like, I don't know, yeah. that pickup process or something. Yeah, yeah, route. pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. They have the scout bees that go out and, you know, they're always scouting around trying to find food and then they come back to the hive and they do their little waggle dances where you've maybe seen the videos of the bees sort of dancing around and waggling their butt, you know, and the, the harder the dance and the longer the dance, you know, tells them the, uh, the level of, um, I guess the amount of calories and stuff they're going for, the more tempting that food source mm. is, is more plentiful. That's what I'm trying to say. And, uh, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but even the direction they're dancing has to do with the, the direction the bee should fly based off the angle of the sun. That's how they send that direction. It's pretty fascinating stuff. What? That's yeah, they're, wild. They're, I mean, yeah. just all the stuff that goes into like studying bees and uncovering that, and, like how they tell each other, you know, where the, the best flowers are like by moving and vibrating stuff. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's taken a lot of research. I, I don't know if it's true, but I, I've always heard people tell me that honeybees are the most studied insect on the planet. And I certainly don't doubt it because the amount of information is massive, but there's still things we don't understand. I, I, even the best beekeepers I've worked, I've worked with master level beekeepers, 20, 30 years experience done it their whole lives. And, um, there's sometimes we open a beehive and we're like, what the heck is going on? You know, like <laughs> what's happening here? We don't know. And you might, hey, guys, come check this out, you know, and everybody will kind of start pitching ideas. And every single one of us will have a totally opposite of idea of what's potentially happening. We just don't know. And, you know, you hopefully you can mark that hive and come back and check. So there is a lot of research being done. And um, I hope there's more because, yeah, it is. It's a pretty tough industry to, to stay afloat in just keeping your colonies because we lose. It's a commercial beekeeper. It's a very I think the average colony loss rate for us is like 40 percent of our colonies really? die every year. Oh yeah. There's been years I've easily lost 50%. And it's just, I mean, there's a multitude of factors that go into that. Um, so basically do like, say like right now we're running 2000 highs. We started this year with 900. Okay. Um, in order for me to, I had to double that, but if I double just up to 2000, I'm going to probably fall right back down to 900 highs. If I don't get out there 
probably in the next few weeks and try to make another 500 or 1,000 hives to make up for all those losses. You basically have to double your colonies every year to maintain your original number. You need to probably triple or quadruple your colonies if you actually want to increase. And sometimes you just have a bad year. It's agriculture. Something can go wrong and you can lose more. So it's tough. Yeah. Um, um, and speaking of those hives, like are all those 2000 hives in one location or are they kind of spread out? Like how do you manage have, having them in different locations? Yeah, I, um, I kind of experiment with different amount the the fewer colonies you have in a location, let's just say they fly about two miles on average to eat from, mm. you don't want yards that are going to overlap with that two mile radius because then that's less food. So the fewer hives you have in a location, the more food there is to go around. So generally, you're going to make better honey crop. The hives are going to rebound faster if something goes wrong. They just have extra resources coming in. But, you know, if you're driving a, you know, a flatbed, you know, one ton dually truck that gets 10 miles to the gallon with diesel fuel so high, yeah, sometimes it's not worth driving out there to 10 hives. So a lot of the commercial guys, myself included, I usually put between 50 to 100 colonies per location. Hmm. And uh, we're spread out, I think, in three different counties right now. We have gone out of state, like to Georgia, to move them up to cotton crops up there. A lot of beekeepers do do that. You know, we send them to California for the almond pollination every year. But but generally, I'd like to keep them fairly close to the house. But a lot of it's just because I'm the, really the only one running the bees. My wife works full time. She helps on the weekend. So I'm trying to get around to these 2,000 colonies. And I think we've got definitely at least 25 active bee yards right now. So I'm trying to mow the grass. I'm trying to, I got to talk to the landowners when I show up. You know, because we pay honey kind of for rent to put our bees there. Mm, and so okay. I want to keep them close by. And um, if I can have more hives in the location, it's better for me, but it's worse for the bees. And that's kind of the balance. I bet. And so the California thing is wild. So I've interviewed one of our first interviews was with uh, Register Bee Farms from Defuniac. Ah, and that, I know. Yeah, was, I know them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They're yeah. awesome. I had um, yeah. Joseph Register on there. They're, they're super wow. cool. I love their honey. Um, which, by the way, I'm going to have to try your honey very, very soon. Um, oh, yeah. But he told me about the California almond thing, and I had no clue about that years ago. Uh-huh. So what is that whole process like? Like shipping the bees out to California, having them out there for a couple of weeks, having them come back? Like what goes into managing that? God, I mean, you got to first know if you can handle <laughs> the stress. It's massive. Like you're, um, most commercial industries rely 100% on that. If you don't mm-hmm. have a good year in the almonds, you could be facing bankruptcy. That's the reality. Generally, even the biggest beekeepers, even the ones I've worked for that were established for a lot of years, had all the kinks worked out in their system, 50% of their gross income came from the almond pollination. So, you know, a business can't just take that hit or at least can't take it too many years in a row. Maybe you take one good hit, and but it's like a gut punch. So it's mm. extremely stressful. You're trying to send as many strong colonies to the almonds, you know, on the, and in my case, literally on the other side of the country, and um, hundreds or thousands of colonies. You have to travel around, in my case, to these like 25 different bee yards, handpick the strongest colonies out of them, bring them to a staging yard, which is usually a, just a giant field that you hope the 18-wheeler that's gonna you're going to load onto doesn't get stuck or it doesn't rain or something, which totally does yeah. happen. And then you, you've got, you don't want to stage them for too long because you don't want to drop like 800 hives uh, in one spot because they start fighting and killing each other. So you try to stage them as close to the loading time as possible. So what that, and you don't move bees during the day. Typically you move them at night because all the bees are inside. You don't mm. want to lose any bees because the farmer's grading you and paying you based off the number of bees in the colony. So basically what it means is, man, as soon as sundown hits, you are hauling butt 
to go out there and grab as many good hides as you can from all over the place. And some people are spread across several states and drop them in this one loading location as fast as you can. And then the semi comes and you try to load 400 hides on there and you put these two massive nets across the truck and um you know and you staple it down or bungee cord it down whatever then you got to hope this driver that it doesn't you know uh do anything wrong doesn't crash or fall asleep or drink a drive or something crazy and he takes your entire livelihood on the other side of the country and you're paying some broker maybe you know this guy maybe you don't who's gonna take those nets off and unload your bees and then go place them in the orchards i've heard of horror stories you know of trucks flipping i've heard horror stories of Broker is just setting your 400 highs on a concrete slab and leaving them for a few days because he, you know, whatever, he's having an argument with his wife and doesn't feel like doing it. And you just lost your entire business. And uh, there's crazy. Like California this year, the weather was just nuts. There was almond orchards that were covered in several feet of snow that were iced over. There were yards that were completely flooded. We couldn't get our bees back until like, man, I, I off the top of me, it was probably close to a month later than we normally do because they couldn't even get in the orchards because of all the rain. It was mm. so muddy to get them out of there. So it's really like panic inducing. My wife and I this year, we sent 500, which was the most we had ever sent. And she's still working. She's got two jobs, so she's working a lot. So every night I had, um, I had just left my job at the other apiary. So I was doing it full time. But um, I would go through during the day and I would grade the hives. You're, you want to make sure they have a certain population. They're healthy, no disease and all that good stuff. All day long, as long as I had sunlight, I was out there grading hives. As soon as sundown came, I hopped in the truck, grabbed my, picked up my wife as soon as she came off from work. And we started to go and grab these hives one hive at a time. And on top of that, you got to transfer every single hive over to brand new or really clean pallets because mm. California doesn't want to introduce fire ants into their state, which fire ants already exist in California, but whatever. And if they do find fire ants, they'll rip the nets off your truck. They'll pressure wash all your hives or force you to even buy brand new clean pallets, charge you several thousand dollars, probably kill all your hives in the process of pressure washing them. Then they'll let them go to the almond orchard where the farmer is going to look and say, I'm not paying for these dead bees that you just sent me and you go bankrupt. So you have to transfer them to clean pallets. And it's um, that's terrifying. So that's one hive at a time. And if you're moving hundreds of thousands of hives and a lot of times these hives are upwards of 200 pounds they need to be healthy so you're talking about nearly blowing your back out we we stayed up for 36 hours straight trying to get our just our 500 hives together and shipped i mean i was hallucinating driving down the road i was just so <laughs> tired because we had because you had to because it's it's a make it or break it moment and all that stuff is condensed into a few day time period or maybe a few weeks if you're really big so super stressful <laughs> uh, yeah i'm sensing it's just a little bit stressful um so how long yeah. are they out how, how long are they out there for again it, it depends on the contract and, you know, mother nature and when the blooms set. Um, okay. but you know, a couple of months, about eight weeks, something like six to eight weeks. So the farmers, it depends on your contract. Some will say, okay, so many of the almond blooms need to be, have fallen off the tree. Like they'll say, okay, I okay. need 80% of my almond blooms to have been pollinated laying on the ground and then I can release them. But that's up to each farmer. So how effective are those nets at keeping bees from going out? Cause I'm wondering like, what percentage of the population do you le do you lose whenever they're traveling to and from California? That depends on the quality of the net. Um, <laughs> I got lucky. The driver, the driver that we sent uh, bees to this year, he had all brand new equipment. It was his first time mm. hauling bees. The poor guy was normally a produce um, hauler, so he didn't know what he was getting into. But oh. I brought him a full body bee suit, and he helped us do the nets and. Uh, we, I thought I was going to kill the poor guy because, uh, those stretching <laughs> out those brand new bungee cables to seal the net is, is like tough. 
So yeah, it, actually, if you do it properly and you have good nets, very few are going to leave. And and what the drivers have to do, and this is where you have to hope they paying attention when you're telling them all the roles they need to follow, is mm-hmm. they need to be always driving if there's daylight. And then they can sleep at night because the bees don't want to leave their hive at night. They Again, they just sit in there. So as long as that wind is rushing against, even if there are small holes in the net, the bees aren't going to usually come out unless a guy gets stuck, mm. you know, in a traffic jam or something, which can also happen. And the bees can certainly overheat too, going down there. So it's there. That's usually okay. Um, the problem is sometimes it's, yeah, you just have to hope you get a good driver. That that's really it. So when you're talking to your truck broker and they're going to send that semi driver, we'll always have to ask like, Hey, you know, have they hauled bees before that? Do they understand the process? Cause if the guy gets tired and wants to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon, could lose 400 hives you know it can just happen so there's a lot of yeah. trust involved and there's a lot of moving pieces it sounds like and it's weird because like you can't monitor your bees it sounds like when they're going to california like it's impossible to see how they're doing it's just like you know you're mm-hmm. crossing your fingers and praying like oh i hope that when the farmer checks on them they're okay when they you know travel across yeah. the country yeah that's, yeah, that's, cra- that's i mean that's you- all it is do you think there's any way that that could be improved? Like, I don't know, some sort of monitoring technology or something? You can buy, they do make uh, in-hive GPS trackers. I know some people that use them, they go right inside the beehive and you can <clears> monitor <throat> at least the truck route, you know, and you see their speed and, you know, where they are on Google Maps and that whole shebang. Mm, um, okay. You know, outside of that, I don't really know what else to do. I don't want to like put a dash cam in the guy's truck and, you know, <laughs> and like observe him or something the whole ride. So I, I wish there was a better way, but I mean, and generally speaking, we've been sending bees now to pollination for, I think just three years, but okay. every time everything has gone smooth as butter, you know, we've gotten paid, we got paid out in full The bees came back with extremely low losses. And mm-hmm. the broker I have now is actually a local guy and he's my age. And we, we both actually just started our own business. We're working for ourselves this year. We've been running the business on the side for a lot of years. So I know him, I trust him and he's really great. And I mean, we, the 500 we sent this year, man, I don't know. I think we lost maybe 10 highs or less, you know, not due to his error or, any, or anybody's yeah, error, yeah. just natural die off. And that's a really low loss because I've worked for companies that have sent them sometimes and they, they could take like a 40% hit on their colonies coming back. So, but there's different reasons for that too. I mean, you, a lot of times you get what you send. So if you send strong, healthy colonies, Generally speaking, you're going to get strong, healthy colonies back. There's a lot of exceptions, but that is the general rule of thumb. But because it's so much money is involved in that, it is usually the singularly most profitable, you know, revenue stream for your business. Sometimes the temptation is there to sneak on small hives and hope the farmer doesn't pop the lid and look at them. So that's incorporating some of that loss there. I got you. And do you know of anybody out there that's had maybe some of their hives stolen? Because I've heard that that's a huge issue, too. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. I, I met him at a festival a few years back. He he uh, sent 400 hives and he lost 400 hives. Oh Somebody did steal them. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I stay on the Facebook commercial beekeepers group, which is like the big group on Facebook. And every year mm-hmm. I watch it. Everybody's like, man, I lost 100 hives, 200, 400 hives. And it happens. And the beekeeping community is pretty good. Like the guy will post a picture of what his hives look like or maybe his brand. We have to put these registration numbers on every single box. Okay. So, um, that kind of helps track too. And, uh, you know, usually people say, okay, here's my registration number. My highs are black and yellow or whatever. And everybody will kind of drive around because a lot of beekeepers are in that area, right? It's full of beekeepers. If they see that they'll report it. And sometimes you get lucky, um, and get it back. But 
you know, and, and it sounds crazy. I didn't believe it. My wife maybe listened to a uh, podcast about it actually a while back. But there's an almond mafia involved in there. there literally is a mafia. They still like whole almond trucks, like semis worth of almonds, because I think a semi load of almonds is worth a million dollars. So they also what? steal oh your beehives. Gosh. It's crazy. There's yeah, there's like a whole crime syndicate because there's so much money. <laughs> there's so much corruption. You have these huge almond farmers who are sitting on these water management boards to manage water for the entire state of California. Because yeah. they have all this money invested in the farms, they divert money away from the community and put them on like, you know, water restrictions to pump money back into their almond trees. So it's it's crazy, man. There's so much bri- bribery and theft and everything involved, but it's like it's like politics. Like you don't even want to look at it. You're like, <laughs> I don't it's just a cesspool, but you have to do it if you want to stay afloat. And um, so you just accept the risk. The politics of almond and beekeeping, um, which yeah. is absolutely why. I mean, you think it'd be a perfect world where you wouldn't have to worry about your bees getting stolen and all these issues, but that is definitely not the case. It sounds like. No, but it's, it's, it has nothing to do with the bees. It has to do with money. You know, there's so much mm. money and that's it. And that brings people who don't care about bees. <laughs> no, I can imagine. And, um, do you do you get to keep the honey after they've done like pollinated all the all the almonds? Like, do you get get to keep the honey and make something special out of it, or what? You can. I mean, I I don't. Uh, what if some beekeepers will actually fly over there themselves, or they'll ship like another semi of honey supers, which is the box hmm. the bees make honey in, and they okay. will make almond honey. Um, I don't like it very much. I you know I taste it you know when it comes back, but I'm not a big fan of it. Um. I don't do it. I let my hives fill their hives up with honey and, and let their populations increase. And then I double them when they come back. So I send bees that are in two boxes. So a double box hive. It literally, mm-hmm. when they come back, I set them out in the bee yard and I just crack the box in half and I put a queen in both ends. Boom. And I double my hives right there. And that's how I do it. And because I let them keep all that honey, they have a lot of resources to continue to grow because I want to double my hives for my honey, you know, my honey production over here to make wildflower and Tupelo if I'm lucky. Oh, hundred percent. Um, that's awesome. And so what about what's your honey making process? Like, I mean, what goes into it? Um, how do you bottle it? How do you collect it? How do you sell it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the bees do most of the work, thank goodness. And it's actually kind of nice, <laughs> uh, during that time. Cause I normally in early spring, you're like raising Queens, you're making new hives, you're selling, I sell a lot of hives to customers. So you're really busy. And then when the bees start get strong enough, they start making honey. I put on these honey boxes. I get like a small breath because all I have to do is drive around to the bee yards and open a lid. And if that box is full of honey, I give them another box if it's mm. not full. And if they look healthy, I just go on to the next yard. So I get a little breath, but we're actually going to start. We're running a little late because we bought a couple other large uh, pieces of machinery to help us extract honey more quickly this year. Okay. And um, so I'm actually going to start as soon as we're done with this interview. I'm going to go start pulling some honey. Um, I hope there's a good amount out there. I think we're going to get a good crop. Yeah. So <laughs> basically I'm going to go out to a location and, um, you know, I have these special, like they're, they're we call them acid boards or fume boards. They're sort of like a raised lid with, uh, some kind of velt coating on the top. And then mm-hmm. we take a, uh, another type of acid, we call it like Bigo and you spray it on this, this lid. And as the sun hits this lid, it warms the acid up and it gases off a little bit and it stinks. I actually, I'm pretty sure it's the same enzyme that's in human vomit because this stuff, it stinks. Like, oh you get it on you, gosh. you smell for weeks. You smell like puke. It's it, I, it's horrible. That's awesome. Um, 
Yeah. Although some people have started using almond oil extract. I did play with that. It kind of smells a bit like hazelnut or something. It's kind of nice. I'm probably going to swap over to that. But anyways, this gas, the bees, you know, they, they mainly communicate based off scent. So if it smells bad to me, it smells like a million times worse to them. (laughs) So they run away from it. You put this fume board on top of the hive, the bees descend out to the entrance and -hmm. hopefully there, hopefully it doesn't always work that way, but hopefully there's no bees in that honey box. So then I can just pull the honey box right off in a, in a perfect world. And then yeah. I lay it on a pallet and I lay that, I load that pallet up on, with my Bobcat on my flatbed truck. And I bring it back to my honey house here at the farm. And from there we, I don't know uh, how much, I guess, you know, a little bit about BIs, but you know, you have removable frames from right. Yeah. That are in the box and I run 10 frame equipment. So there's 10 frames of hopefully honey in that box. And we take a frame out and we used to hand scratch it. We used to take a frame of honey and we had this little thing. It looked like a hairbrush and we would kind of run it across the top of the honey because the bees seal the honey. So it doesn't mm-hmm. come out when it's, when it's ripe and it's ready to be harvested. And that took forever. So this year we bought this machine called an uncapping machine. It looks like a pizza oven. It's got like a conveyor belt <laughs> and you just lay your frames and it has these spinning chains and they uncap the, uh, the frame of honey for you. And that saves so much time. And then you pull this frame off. And we put it in our extractor, which is just a giant centrifuge. It just spins really, really, really fast, slings all the honey out. The honey drains out into, you know, whatever you got, five-gallon buckets or some sort of holding tank. And, uh, I mean, that's that's honey right there, really. And usually what you want to do is let it settle overnight, and you can come back and sort of skim off any wax, you know. And if it's raw honey, sometimes there's dead bees in it. It happens. You skim all that off because, you know, people don't want bee legs in their honey. <laughs> yeah, usually. And uh, <laughs> Was there a wing that, in my and, honey? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, if it's raw and filtered honey, that is the reality. I guarantee you there's about a million smashed up bees in your honey bottle. If it's raw, <laughs> I guarantee you. Uh, I don't like telling people that, but uh, you know, that, that's that's raw honey. But you get all the good enzymes from the pollen and everything as well. And you just can't serve. You can't have both, you know. Um, but basically, you could take that honey right there out of the extractor and put it in some in a bottle. You know, we have this stainless steel bottling tank. It's got a little lever. I press the lever. It fills the bottles up. And it's simple. What we just recently bought was something called a wax separator. And okay. um, and I just had an electrician out this morning trying to run 220 volts to it because I'm just I don't know anything about electricity. But it's it's a bit it's another giant centrifuge and it actually cleans the honey too. It filters the honey, not to the degree that it's removing the pollen and all the natural enzymes that people want with raw, but it gets out all the wax, it gets out dead bees or whatever happens to be in there. So you end up with a cleaner honey. And then that machine I pump out into 55 gallon barrels, which I sell mostly as I sell it wholesale, um, to like a large honey supplier. You know, we had somebody come uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, and, and quote us a price for wholesale and stuff. And that's kind of the, the process there. And yeah, and hopefully it goes well. If we're, if we're bottling it, you know, we sell in some local stores. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get a commercial grade kitchen that's been inspected by a health food inspector. If we do that, then in the state of Florida, I can start shipping my honey online, which I know there's a lot more competition, but you know, I get a lot more like a wholesale price for honey right now. They're paying, the person just quoted me $2 and 85 cents per pound, but I sell my, my wildflower honey in a one pound jar for $10 a pound. And even if you account for that, there's like a dollar fifty in your bottle lid and labor. That's a substantial, massive profit margin that I'm giving up by selling a wholesale. But you know, I, I'm expecting probably at least thirteen thousand pounds of honey this year. I can't sell that many bottles in just the couple stores I sell in or my little honey stand at the house. It's just not possible. So you got to just sell it wholesale. 
Yeah. Would you, would you do like maybe farmer's markets eventually to kind of capitalize on that? Cause there's always like a bunch of people selling at farmer's markets when it comes to yeah. honey. So is that something you would try? We, we did for a lot of years. Um, okay. it, it's not, it's not profitable at our scale anymore. Um, okay. unfortunately, I think when we first started out, I literally used to just park my truck on the side of the road, let the tailgate down and I had 10 bottles of honey. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I made 20 bucks, I was happy. And then, you know, we, we got a little fancier. We bought a nice tent and table and a big banners and this nice tablecloth. We started making honeycomb and honey mustard and all this different stuff. And then I would try to set out near the airport over here at Panama city or in the Walmart parking lot and hope they didn't kick me out. And, but sometimes you could sit out there for six hours and make a hundred or 200 bucks, you know, gross. That doesn't even count all the money I put into, you know, the labels and all that. So that was really tough too. You know, now, you know, you know, our budget is just not going to, that's not going to cut it. So, you know, we pretty much have to just accept that wholesale cost. But, you know, even if we make that 13,000 pounds of honey, you're still talking, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in revenue right there. Um, yeah, it would be better to sell it in the bottle, but that's, that's just kind of how it is. The other companies I worked for that were really big. I mean, they, they mostly made most of their money just selling a wholesale, which, you know, is better for the consumer. It's a little less nice for me, but at the same time, the benefit is I can literally just put everything in a 55 gallon drum. A semi truck will come right here to the house. I can load everything up and they'll cut me a check or direct deposit the money and it's done. You know, I don't have to spend an entire year kind of like trying to hawk out and sell one pound jars, you know, and that just takes a lot of work and it's a lot of customer interaction. And then it takes me away from the 2000 hives that I need to be out working. And so that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, that's a lot of management. I mean, I can't imagine what goes into that. I mean, managing over if you had over 2000 hives and then bottling it all and selling it all like I mean, you're, you'd be, I don't know, exhausted for time because you'd either be at yeah. farmers markets, you'd be going to the stores, you'd be checking on the hives. I mean, clearly, you can only do so much in 24 hours a day. That that's that's literally it. I mean, you know, I, I work the hives during the day. And then at night, if I don't have to move any hives, uh, you know, I'm researching or trying to come up with other product ideas and I'm lucky. My wife is pretty good on Photoshop and stuff. So she does all these design mm. designs and, uh, you know, editing for the videos and whatever we have to do. And I try to do some social media the best I can. I, I want to do more, but yeah, sometimes you come home at the end of the day and I'm like, I don't want to touch my phone. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> you know, I just want to zone out sometimes, but at the same time, it's like really exciting because we were growing. Like we've been pretty consistently doubling our colonies every year for the last, you know, six years I've been doing it. So mm -hmm. that, that, that motivation is just kind of, I kind of had that inertia and I've been doing it. I've been working seven days a week so long like this, that it's, I've forgotten anything. I can't imagine doing like an eight hour like job anymore. I'm like, what would you even do? What would I do with the day? And the problem, the problem is that I've noticed it recently. If I'm around people who aren't, beekeepers or they don't aren't interested in bees i can no longer hold a conversation with them oh, really? like the entire world has just died around me and my only universe has to do with honeybees so it's unless somebody says hey how are the bees doing i can talk to you for hours but they're like hey did you see what's on the news i'm kind of like uh was it bees you know <laughs> it's just because i've just been i have nothing else in my life and you know and it's a good and a bad thing but that's what it takes i feel like if you're trying to build a business from the ground up you know and be successful so I, I really love it. I mean, some people probably wouldn't like that, but it, it's what I want to do. Yeah, I can tell you love it and that you're passionate about it. I mean, that, that's awesome. You have that passion that I feel like, you know, will drive you to success. And you're like, you know, when you when you find people like you that are very passionate about it, like they're willing to do anything to make like their dream or their passion a reality. So it seems like, I mean, you're willing to sacrifice like whatever else to grow the business. That's awesome. I mean, 
Where do you think y'all could be maybe this time next year? 4,000 hives um, or something? I, I don't think we're going to try to double unless I'm able to hire employees because I mm, think okay. 2,000 is my limit. Um, okay. I'm actually thinking about buying another 500 boxes so I can run 500 more mating nukes so I can start producing you know 500 more queens every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that will put me at like 2,500 and I'm already super stretched in. I've got landowners where I have hives at that I haven't been to in like a month or two because I'm so stretched so thin. And some of them very politely send me a text message and say, hey, Matthew, uh, there's some weeds up there. They're about six feet tall. When are you going to mow the bee yard? You know, it looks ugly, you know, <laughs> next to my house. So I have to mow all these things, too. And that takes forever. I hate mowing the grass. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm just stretched too thin. Um, after we harvest this honey, for us, our season is pretty much done. Like, once I get that honey check, we'll, we'll get a little bit of money for queens. I might sell a few more hives. I might sell some bottles of honey. But for the most part, I'll know what our annual budget's going to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to our accountant, and she's going to give me a projection, an, an end-of-year projection. So I can kind of see what I'm going to have to pay the IRS and taxes. I'll see how much money we have left. I'm going to tally up you know, what I, how much I spent on mechanic bills and investing in honey equipment and all that fun stuff. And, um, if the money is there, I want to hire somebody next year. I've already told my wife, I'm like, you can leave your job and come and help me if you want, or I'm hiring somebody. We got to find a way because I want to keep growing. I like this inertia. I don't want to stagnate. And, um, so we'll see. That's kind of, that'd be my big, that's my big goal for next year is try to have our first employee. There you go. That's a big goal. I I hope you guys can accomplish it. I mean, that's something that, you know, um, super popular people like Mr. Beast has done like everything he makes, mm-hmm. he just reinvests it and look at the scale that he's gotten. I mean, the first couple of yeah. years you've got to, you know, you've got to like eat dirt because you've got to get to that scale and just everything you make, reinvest it, reinvest it. Because eventually, I mean, you're going to make some really good profits because you've been putting yeah. the business first. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much my, my first boss <laughs> did. I mean, he started out with nothing. I think he started out same age. I started out was like 28 or something. Mm. And, uh, he had a couple hives. He didn't know what he was doing. And, um, you know, now he's running 8,000 over two States. He's a multimillionaire. I think he's founded like two or three other businesses. Oh, wow. And, uh, he's a cool guy, real down to earth guy. Um, uh, super hippie. He always, when I first met him, he was wearing like cut off cargo pants and his old tie day <laughs> shirt, flip flops. And I went to go ask him for a job and he gave me like several bottles of honey he gave me a couple bottles of mead because he had started up his own meadery business oh, cool okay I, it was so cool and i was like this guy is awesome i was like i came to ask this guy for a job and i left with like hundreds of dollars of his products and he was just ex- really excited he had all his passion about bees and about running a business and it that and he had so much charisma he was like oozing charisma i remember him and uh that helped me fall in love with it too because he i think some of his passion passion sort of leached off to leached off to me a little bit and, uh, I definitely use him as my inspiration. I go, okay, well, this guy has done all these things. We started bees at the same time. We both started from nothing. If I can be 50% as successful as this guy is, I'll be extremely happy. So I've got a lot of motivation around me too. Um, and everyone, everyone in this community, in the beekeeping community has been really wonderful. Everyone's helped us, taught us. There's a, I got, you know, a dozen different guys I could call up now if I have a question, you know, and they'll answer the phone, they'll come help me. So the community here has really been wonderful and they don't have to be because they're definitely, I've heard down in central South Florida where it's, there are a lot more beekeepers is very cutthroat over there. Hmm. So I, I'm grateful to be in this area and, uh, you know, and to have the community that we've had. And I'm trying to share that too. That's why I gave that talk, you know, at the bee club the other night and I was sharing where we are on Queens and the whole, the whole thing. 
because I want to help those people too. And they don't all want to be commercial beekeepers. Most people don't want to be commercial beekeepers. I understand it really sucks sometimes. It's really hard, <laughs> but um, they, they want to have one or two beehives and they, they just want some honey for their family and that's fine. And so I try to share, I try to kind of pass on that knowledge that I've learned and uh, you know, hopefully they just keep passing that on because I, I only have gotten to where I've gotten because I've had those other people who took the time to invest in me and to share their knowledge with me. And it's just really helped us get where we are. So I'm very grateful for that. That's a good thing that this industry up here is a lot more collaborative than the almond mafia. So that's good to hear. I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, how did how did the bees fare after Hurricane Michael? Because I know that was you know obviously a huge thing five years ago. So how yeah. how 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 were the bees impacted? And then how have they hopefully rebounded since then? They uh, there was a lot of damage. I mean. Um, we didn't have many hives back then. I think we had like, shoot, 120 hives, maybe. Okay. I think we lost 50% of them. But a lot mm. of the problem was, you know, I had just gotten another job. I was working a lot, so I couldn't take care of them. But there was a lot that just got smashed by trees that got blown away. Some of the lids got blown off. They got rained into. They died of like fungal diseases. Mm. And uh, that was pretty tough. The apiary ended up getting a job with, after Hurricane Michael, they lost a substantial number of hives. And Again, trees crushing them. We even years later, we were still like finding bee yards where we had to take chainsaws to and cut our way to because I almost had forgotten about them. <laughs> and um, it, it does happen, but the main reason they were really were lost is because all of the forage was destroyed. So everything those bees had been feeding on that year, and they were going to feed on the next year. Those plants that take sometimes years to develop to produce nectar and pollen, they were mm -hmm. wiped out. They were gone. So there was a lot of um, starvation that happened the next year. And we just couldn't get to our hives to work them, you know, and if you want to try to check your hives, I like to try and check my hive every month. And that's how I kind of keep track of them. And sometimes the bigger guys, it could take them months to clear pass out to all those yards. So yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. But the, the good thing was I did hear some of the old bee, the old beekeepers tell me, they said, just watch now that all that, all those tree covers are gone because Hurricane Michael snapped all our pine trees in half. They said, wait for the underbrush it's going to grow up and, you know, and in mm. a few years you're going to have this massive honey bloom. And that's exactly what happened. We had like gallberry. We have low bush and high bush gallberry. It's this little bush that and shrubs that grow in the forest. They really bloomed like crazy a few years later. And the honey crops have been really good um, because of that, because they didn't have all that competition. So it, you know, it's like anything. There were some good sides to it, bad side. I, I would have preferred it not happen, especially to the human damage, but you know, we kind of got a nice honey crop down the road, but, yeah, you just kind of, it's, it's agriculture is you're really at the whims of mother nature. If she's in a bad mood one day, you know, she can mess up your whole life. So, uh, <laughs> it's very, it's very common for me to be out working a bee yard and a thunderstorm hit. And I'm like, oh, I'm just like yelling and screaming and cussing at the sky. Cause I'm like, I got 20 more hives to put Queens in. My Queens are about to hatch. I'm not, I'm going to finish this. I was out there in a storm yesterday, opening lids and sticking Queens in. Cause I was so aggravated. Cause I was like, I drove out, you know, half an hour out here. I'm going to finish this work. You know, and I'm just yelling at the sky like a crazy person because <laughs> I don't know, maybe Mother Nature will listen to me and just take a chill pill, but she never does. So I you mean, just hey, adapt. It, oh, yeah. It, it's that crazy time in, in the summer where it like rains for like 30 minutes and it's a horrible thunderstorm. Uh -huh. And then 15 minutes later, it's clear and there's not a cloud yeah. in the sky. That's Florida weather is so temperamental, especially in the summer and the spring. It, it is. Yeah. It's just enough to get you wet and miserable and then skyrocket the humidity to like 500%. And then, you know, you're choking to death and it's just, it is, it is, that's, that's aggravating for sure. 
Yeah, the humidity is the worst part. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've been to Disney in the summer. I mean, not anymore, but like growing up and it was like yeah. rain and then uh-huh. you get soaked and then it would get super hot and you would be absolutely miserable. But I don't know. It's one yeah. of those things, I guess, in Florida. It, it is. Yeah. My, my wife is French and, you know, and I'll complain mm, to her okay. sometimes like it's a hundred degrees outside and uh, she'll go, well, it's a hundred degrees over in France too, you know, but they have where she's at on the coast. It's like a dry heat. So it's not the same. But yeah, yeah that, definitely the heat combined with the humidity is just brutal. That humidity is awful. We we were going mm-hmm. out the other day in my wife's Jeep. It said it was 118 degrees because it had just been sitting there. And I was like, but but the weather channel said it feels like 104. But it was actually like yeah. 95 degrees. But with the humidity and the heat index, it felt like 104. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's brutal. I, I usually go out with like two gallons of frozen water and then, you know, seems like within an hour or two, it's like hot water. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> you know, I put this water in the shade. I'm so sick of drinking hot water. And I don't you just you just I don't know. You work a little slower, but, you know, you have to keep going, especially us. We're out going to be out here pulling honey. So um, just have to power through it. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, got to do what you got to do to, you know, obviously help the bees and get the honey and all that good stuff. Uh, Well, Matthew, this has been awesome, man, chatting with you about Walk in the Woods Apiary. If people want to check out your website, your social media, like where can they go to find you and learn more about yourself? And and obviously, like whenever you do more on your YouTube channel, like where can they go? So definitely. uh, Thank you. Yeah, I really actually it's been my first podcast. It's been pretty (laughs) cool. Um, So, yeah, we have walkinthewoodsapiary.com is our address. And then you can find us on Facebook at Walk in the Woods Apiary as well. And, uh, as soon as we launch the YouTube channel, it'll probably be walking the woods apiary, I'm sure. And, um, hopefully we'll have that up running soon. Hey, well, there you go. I feel like bees will be super popular on YouTube because people love, you know, they love bees and especially like the, the new shorts feature on YouTube. I've been doing that. And like, I mean, honestly, I'll just repurpose like an Instagram video and throw it up on YouTube and it will get a ton of views. So I feel like that's going to be super duper popular once y'all start doing it. Yeah, they're they're really addictive. There are a lot of YouTube guys. There's like Cameron Reynolds. He's in uh, Tennessee. I watch his videos all the time. He's like this really down to earth beekeeper. He's really chill. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I, I I love those videos. I'm sure a lot of beekeepers make YouTube videos, but I I think it'll be exciting. I I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I I'm trying to get better as far as you know, not rambling too long, and you know, my wife having to edit you know three hours of footage, <laughs> but. Um, She's uh she went to film school in Paris, so she's she's got oh. the the understanding of it. So I'm I'm trying to listen to her direction a little better. I'm a little hard headed, so it's hard when she's like, say this, say that. And I'm like, oh, but I want to say this and that. And you know, and then we have to redo the take like six times. And uh so I'm working on that. <laughs> That's so funny. She's got the the direction down for the video, but you've got the content, like you know, like what needs yeah. to be said, what needs to be included. Um, what's that lady's name? She was on the Joe Rogan podcast. She's like the soft spoken lady that like, you know, she goes and the blonde haired girl. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember her name, but she is like, she must have almost a million subs on Instagram and YouTube. She's super popular. Yeah, she is. Yeah. I remember her watching like remove a swarm from a toilet or something with her bare hands. And I was like, I was like, who is this girl? This is crazy. Yeah. I watched that. I watched Joe Rogan all the time and I watched that video. I, I can't remember her name either. It's been a while, but yeah, that's there's, yeah people find bees interesting for sure and she's doing cool stuff because she kind of does a lot of stuff without suits and without gloves and everything so that's kind of neat yeah she's in street clothes and just getting these like massive hives and not getting stung and i feel like everybody watching it is like oh my god please don't get stung please don't get stung and that's like half the draw you know 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, because you know she's going to get that nose sting or the ear sting. The worst is when they get in your ear and they try to crawl into your brain and they sting you and they die. And oh, my gosh. Crawling around your skull. I had that happen once. I've got like PTSD now. If a bee gets near my ear, I like freak out because <laughs> um, that it's terrifying sometimes. But I yeah, bet it I, is like get this thing out of my ear, please, right now. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. I was slamming my head on. I think on the side of my car. I was like, get out, get out, get out. I was moving bees. I called one of my coworkers. He lived a couple miles down the road from the apiary, and it's like middle of the night. And I was like, hey man, there's a bee in my ear. And he's like, what? I was like, there's a bee in my ear. Get it out. I'm freaking out. He doesn't understand a word I'm saying. You know, he just like he knows I'm in trouble. So I drive down. We meet him at like an intersection, like deep in the woods, we're out in the country. And I like stick my head in front of his headlights and he, thank goodness, happened to grab a pair of tweezers from the house and he just rammed these tweezers like straight into my brain. And the bee, the bee's like trying to get deeper and deeper. She's trying to get away from the tweezers. <laughs> She's already stung me. So my ear is swollen Ooh. at that point. So he can barely get it in there. And he finally gets her out. And she's just clawing my ear canal all the way out, like nails <laughs> on a chalkboard. And you hear everything is amplified, oh you know, the noises from being inside your ear. And I, I didn't hear straight for like three weeks. My ear would just pulsate. And I would hear weird ringing sounds. I was like, I'm going to go deaf. And man, I freaked. They, the guys laughed about it. I always tell them the story now. But I, I really freaked out. And uh, and I get stung all the time. It's It would be nothing for me to get like 25 stings. But the ears, that's scary. I can't imagine how terrifying that was. I mean, just hearing it and it's like crawling in there yeah. to your brain. The bee's yeah. like, I'm going to teach him a lesson for messing with me. <laughs> that's it. It's like, oh, you smashed how many thousands of my sisters? I'm going to get them back. So <laughs> I've heard of guys getting stung in the eyeball and stuff before. That's Ooh. never happened. But that... That always worries me. I wear sunglasses a lot. I'm like, oh, I don't want to get that ice thing. I know it's coming one day. I'm prepping myself for it. It sounds like it's not that bad, but it sounds terrifying. I don't want to experience it. So they will get you literally everywhere on your body. There is nothing sacred to those honeybees when they want to get you. They will find a hole in your suit or in your glove, and they will get to some spot you don't want them to get to. And uh, they will remind you that, uh, <laughs> you know, they're living creatures and they have feelings and they don't like it when you smash them, when you put the lid down too fast and you crush 50, you know, of their cousins or something. So, oh, yeah. I mean, do, do you feel like you've built up a tolerance to getting stung? Like you're, you get stung now, you're like, ah, whatever. Yeah, it's it, it always hurts. It definitely doesn't hurt any less than it used to. Um, but I don't swell up anymore. It's very rare. Occasionally, like the fingers, once in a blue moon, they'll they'll swell up. Mm. Or if I get like half a dozen stings and maybe in the same spot, because every time they sting you, they mark you with a pheromone. So the other bees are like, hey, kill that one spot. <laughs> um, that can swell a little bit. But other than that, no, it's really more of an annoyance. I mean, I just kind of go, oh, I pull the stinger out and I just keep working because I mean, you get stung every day. It's just it just happens. I got stung like twice this morning because I had like this tiny little hive that I've been keeping around the house and it's like 10 boxes tall. It's almost as tall as me. And I had to like lift it up and put it on a pallet and put a ratchet strap around it because I want to get it away from the house tonight so it doesn't steal all the honey I'm going to start extracting. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't wear a suit or anything and the straw was wet from all the rain. So I only got a couple half puffs of smoke and I was like, oh, it's fine. You know, whatever. I'm just going to lift this thing up and they just tore me up. Like right away. And I was like, ah, oh, but you know, I just, I wanted to get it over with. I just set it down, took a few stings and yeah, you, know, you just deal with it. I, <laughs> it's part of beekeeping. I bet, I bet you're popping Benadryl like crazy or Advil or something. <laughs> not, not anymore. I mean, not I really, but yeah, but yeah, you, you're, you're, you really do build an immunity up to the venom. I guess it's like those people that deal with venomous snakes and stuff, you know, they'll like inject themselves with little bits of venom and they become immune. So you do get resistant to the venom, which is nice, but there's always that random chance that you'll get like anaphylactic shock or something. I have heard of really? beekeepers who've been doing it for years. Yeah. There's a guy in our, 
our uh, bee club, actually. He's been keeping bees for a long time, you know, on a hobby scale. And I think he got stung in the back of the neck or something. And been stung, you know, who knows how many times over his life. And his body was just all of a sudden, like, freaked out. And he couldn't breathe. He had to get rushed to the hospital. And a lot of beekeepers, when they get that, they have to not keep bees anymore. And that's always kind of terrifying. I've met two people that way. However, this guy, he kept, he went to the doctor and he found a doctor who would give him micro venom therapy. So they would just inject him with tiny amounts of bee venom over mm-hmm. long periods of time. And he built his immunity back up, um, which I'd never, I didn't even know that was possible until he had told me. So I guess there is a way out, but that's something I tell you that that's something I've had nightmares about, like getting, not cause I'm worried about dying or something, but the fact that I may not be able to keep bees anymore. I'm like, I could lose everything because my body just is being stupid this one time. I was like, no. That's that's such a unique situation that beekeepers are in. I mean, like that's your livelihood. That's your business. And you yeah. get stung all the time. But yeah, like that one sting, you don't have that immunity anymore. And it could be a totally it, like it could be it could like end your business. That's wild. I never thought about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Most most places don't have it. Yeah. Like you're doing podcasting. It'd be like you turn it on your mic one day and your ears <laughs> yeah. blowing up or something, you know, yeah. like boom. Like why yeah, it doesn't happen in a lot of fields. So and it's just a random or seems to be a totally random thing. So which, you know, it seems to be pretty rare. I don't know what the data is on it, but I've only ever met two people and one guy got through it. So it seems to be a pretty rare thing. I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, at least that that um, that venom therapy is there. That's interesting. But at least that's, you know, could yeah. hopefully solve it if you had that issue pop up. But hopefully you yeah. won't knock on wood. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to keep uh, keep working bees for sure. I bet. Um, well, Matthew, this has been super fun. And again, we're going to have to connect at some point. I'm going to have to order and try your honey. I'm super excited. And and you're, you mentioned mead. I have been seeing a lot of videos on Instagram of this dude that makes mead. And I was like, you know what? I want to get some honey to try this. I'm going to have to try it with your honey, hopefully. I'm, I got to order yeah. all the stuff and then try it. So that'll be super fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I used to make it back in college. It's It's not too hard. It just takes a long time. But uh, it does take a lot of honey usually to, to get get anything substantial. But it's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's definitely a whole nother whole nother business. Oh yeah, a whole other topic. Yeah, he um I think his video he recommended like five pounds of honey. I think for like mm-hmm. one like ten gallon um ten or fifteen gallon um distillery thing or, or, or little bucket or whatever i i forget i need to watch the yeah, video again yeah i think it's something like that you get some wine yeast and uh yeah wait a really long time but it's yeah. it's pretty potent stuff watch out you'll uh <laughs> you'll be breathing fumes sometimes <laughs> yeah there was one he said that he was like this recipe it's like 20 percent alcohol i was like dang for me yeah. that's pretty impressive <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i think honey's like 80 percent concentrated sugar i think it's only 20 percent moisture so mm, and those okay. yeast just go nuts off that stuff that's wild. Well, I'll have to try that sometime soon and then do a video on the honey and on the meat. But thanks again, man. Best of luck. Hopefully yeah. everything continues to grow for you guys and keep us updated. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thanks again to Matthew for coming on the show. And thanks again to you for listening. You've heard it once. You've heard it a thousand times. I always appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed the episode, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. That helps us reach a larger audience and, of course, more people learning where their food comes from. And if you want to check out more content, go to thefarmtraveler.com, where we have a new page called Farm Tours, where you can see some cool little farm tour videos we've done. Um, Some of the farm tours include places like Lava Aloha in Hilo, Hawaii, 
Sindel Farms in Marianna, Florida, and Legacy Greens in Tallahassee. So check it out. Again, that is at thefarmtraveler.com, and you can see all of our past content and see our social media posts. So thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.